Welcome to the Paru Zings, Appraisers on Purpose podcast. This podcast showcases inspiring appraisers and professionals from the industry who are leaders in their field. How did they get to where they are? What have they learned along the way? And what do they do now for their teams, their clients, and the industry? Your host is real estate investor, entrepreneur, and appraiser, Michael Hobbs. All right. Well, it is a pleasure to connect with you again for another segment of Parusings. Today, we are fortunate to have Greg Stevens joining us. And once again, just that you know inside look into a, an eclectic career of experiences, in some cases, uh, very early insights into what the future of a growing industry has been and will be. So very excited to have our time with Greg today. Greg, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Michael. Glad to be here. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Well, we always start out with our powerful first question is, Greg, were you born this way or how did you get into the real estate appraisal profession? I was actually working for Fairchild Semiconductor back in Silicon Valley in 1974. And my brother was in real estate. He had he was a partner in an appraisal firm called BNB, Bob and Bruce Appraisal. And they were doing drive-by appraisals on the side in between escrows from selling houses. On weekends, I would just kind of ride shotgun with him, go around, watch what he was doing, had an interest in it. And back then, our data source, Michael, literally was what they called the SREA books, which was a, a published bound publication that yep. got monthly. Mm-hmm. And it would have one line <laughs> data with codes, and that would be literally the appraisals data that would be coming out of the banks and the sa- and the appraisal departments out of savings and loans. And that was our data source. And so I would be looking through those, and I would be kind of calculating. And I was actually coming in pretty close with who my brother was. He kept oh, telling me, he should... You should consider this. And so I remember in 1977, he called me, and it was one of those classic calls, right? <laughs> it was my opportunity to go into business for yourself, pick your own hours, work out. <laughs> it turns out that his partner, Bruce Worthington, bought a restaurant up in Lake Tahoe, and mm. Bob said, buy Bruce's part interest out. Oh, wow. So I made that leap of faith. I did it. And and really, at that particular time, we were going through a motivational series with Jim Rohn. Jim Rohn. Wow. Pulling out the Wayback Machine, Greg. I love it. Adventures in Achievement. Yep. And I I remember what he was talking about. And I, I thought, I don't want to be at the end of my career and look back and say, what if? Right. I was doing really well at Fairchild. Things were going very well. But I thought, what if? And so I made that leap of faith. I bought Bruce out. And I think I shared with you my Polaroid camera that was part of that purchase. So, Greg, that would be fascinating to hear a little more description of the camera that most people probably didn't even know existed. So part of the acquisition of the appraisal firm partnership was a uh, Peugeot diesel as well as this Polaroid camera, which I'm sure very few people have actually seen. It actually both functions. You shoot it, yeah, shoot it, and you get one picture comes out. Well, yep. You stand there and watch it develop, and we would then take those and we would staple them to the appraisal report, which was a one-page they called it the Green Hornet, one-page green yep. appraisal form. And yes. it's literally how I started in the business with this canvas. So. That is impressive. One, amazing technology. And you know to consider that before there was no such thing as near instantaneous photography right. uh, that Polaroid invented. Yeah, it was interesting because when they came out, Speaking of, of the camera, when they came out with the digital camera, they uh, it had limited capacity. We we had probably half a dozen up to 10 photos that we could actually shoot and then download very, very laboriously. But that was, at the time, we thought that was absolute state-of-the-art on that <laughs> led to being able to download 
color photos into the, then the laser jet. Because prior to that, we had the uh, dot metric printers. I remember in 1983, I bought my first appraisal network for an appraisal firm in Silicon Valley. It was, I had a file server that was about the size of a Cisco router today. And I had six dummy terminals. And it was probably a word processor. Everything was hardwired. And mm-hmm. I paid $25,000. And that was in 1983. 1983. And it had a, if you're ready for this, and that it yes. megabyte hard drive. Oh my gosh, that was massive, Craig. They said I would never <laughs> flip, right? And I never did. I actually never did. By the time we upgraded to new computers and softwares, I had never actually exceeded the capacity in that wow. 50 megabyte hard drive, which now I, I, I can't even imagine what 50 megabyte would even run. <laughs> Jeez, so. that, that's amazing. So from in that time frame, that, so did you, here, important questions we need to know. Did you change the name from B&B? Well, so a year later, my brother decides that he wants to specialize in 1031 tax 31 exchanges. And so he doesn't want to be involved in, in the appraisal business anymore. So I bought him out. And that's when I created GE Stevens and Associates, changed the name, created the logo. It was an oval with a GES. And uh, I had that appraisal firm. From there, we developed into a five-office regional firm, covering basically from Bakersfield up to the Oregon border. Actually had an appraiser that moved up to Reading and was an extension of my company for a couple of years. And then we had decided that the distance was just so great because that was way before cell phones and internet. So that was literally how we expanded all the business. That is amazing. And talk about intersection of of different industries creating opportunities. It was looking back on it, because this is really what they talk about when they talk about the Wild West. So this was before licensing. This was before 1989 and 91, creation of the uh, appraisal regulatory boards, etc., And so we literally would have the opportunity to have someone express an interest in appraising. And I was also teaching at a local college in the evenings. I would teach the uh, appraisal principles and appraisal procedures. And I would have individuals who were taking that class, that evening class, and wanting a career change, indicating an interest, and I would bring them in teach them how to appraise, and within a very short period of time, would have them out independently appraising. And back then it was challenging because we didn't have the technology that we have today. So if they were out there in the field and ran into a problem, they would have to literally wait until they got back to the office, explain the problem. In many instances, I would have to go with them back out to the property and resolve the issue, whereas today, you know, just <laughs> use our cell phone, here's a bull on what the problem is, and resolve it instantaneously. So, Greg, I, I could be making a big assumption, but I don't think that's the case at all. How good were you at knowing where all the pay phones were located? <laughs> very good. Absolutely very good, yes. And it was about 1986, I did get one of the first huge Motorola phones that floor mounted in the car. In the car, yes. (laughs) And at the time, I was commuting back and forth in Silicon Valley, and so I would literally be on the phone first thing in the morning as I'm driving into the office. And um, I remember back then the the cost of work time. Yes. And again, Michael, this was 1986. I would have $1,500 charges on my Motorola uh, mobile phone. Yes. And I had. It was, uh, did it look like, was that the one that looked like the bag? The one that was mounted there? I could, it actually, actually, no, I take that back. It looked like the old style rotary dial phone, except it didn't have the rotary dial. And it went right in the console, didn't it? 
Well, no, it actually had a floor mount. There were those that went in the console, but this was an actual floor mount. So they little wow. installed the mount in the floor, and then it, it sat up there. And I mean, it was massive. It was, uh, <laughs> yeah, like the the walkie talkies that we see in uh, the the uh, military movies, right? That's amazing. That that was that was state of the art. And what it enabled me to do is to beat oh. And in, in what years? It's the late eighties, right? The eighty six, eighty seven. I had at that time I had multiple offices, so I was literally could be on the phone as I'm driving between San Jose and my Fremont office, between my Fremont office and my Concord office, Concord office over to Modesto. And so I had, you know, lots of what would have been downtime. I was actually able to to capitalize on, so, but we've come a long way between that phone and, and what we have today, right? And plus, we, <laughs> the capabilities are endless. Yeah. Wow, that is. I mean, it's phenomenal to think about your intersection with technology. At a, you were in a part of the country where it's always been a bit of an early adopter, and here you are, not only with the Polaroid. You've got the mobile-mounted phone in the car. You were, as some would say, on the bleeding edge of the industry evolution. I could attest to that, but we also, when you are leading out there, you also are the one with the arrows in the back, right? And so we did have challenges. I remember that prior to getting the computer system, everything was handwritten. So I had, you know, staff appraisers in the office. They would handwrite with pencil on the appraisal form. And then sure. we, had, we had housewives that would come by the office at five o'clock in the afternoon and they would pick up a stack of these handwritten appraisals. They would take them home. They would type them on their IBM Selectric typewriters. The IBM Selectric. Wow. Yes. Yeah. I mean, when, when IBM came out with that Selectric, we thought we had died and gone to heaven. It was just so amazing. <laughs> They would literally bring them back in the morning. My staff would package them. We would put on the arrows, you know, the subject and the comp arrows. We would do all that, staple the yes. photographs to the photograph pages and everything at, at that time. And again, this was late 80s, early 90s. All of my clients were local. And so oh, yeah. I literally had the daughter of one of my staff appraisers she would come by the office when she got out of high school and pick up the completed appraisal reports and take them and drop them off at the various banks that that we had our clients with. And so everything was everything at that time was hand delivered. It was not until much later. Matter of fact, it was a paradigm shift. I'll never forget this phone call, Michael. <laughs> he had completed an appraisal, and it was for one of the staff at Stanford University. And it was the housing, which was right next to the campus, and it's you know very unique, very high-priced. An investor back in, in New York had purchased that loan and had the appraisal. So I get a phone call from the underwater, and she's not understanding why we're making these large adjustments for location for the properties okay. that are not adjacent to the university versus those that are. And so, you know, she said, so what is this Stanford University? And I'm thinking, oh, <laughs> my God. That's actually a fair question. I mean, right now we would chuckle, but I mean, and you being in the backyard would have that experience, but it's actually a fair question if we roll back that many decades. If you think about it, because Silicon Valley has always been extremely high priced. I can remember when I was at Fairchild, we would literally, if we had someone coming in from Motorola in Arizona, or we had somebody coming back from Massachusetts, we would have to supplement their housing in order to get them to be able to move into Silicon Valley. The Silicon Valley was always higher priced. So when you think about it, that underwriter in New York was probably living in a home that was maybe, you know, less than 50,000, certainly less than 100,000 back back at that time. And we were making, at that time, 
you know, because we're in the neighborhood of, you know, four or $500,000, it will be nothing for us to make a $25,000 line item adjustment. And so when you get someone out of the, of the area, even today, even today, I have appraisers that are review appraisers knowing that I had a firm in California will call me because they're reviewing an appraisal and it's an 1,800 square foot bungalow that just sold for $900,000. And they're having trouble understanding a $50,000 line item adjustment. So that was a paradigm shift for me. And I literally went to my staff and I said, folks, we have to beef up the appraisal reports. We have to be more clear about how we're describing our neighborhood because I just realized we're not delivering these now to the local banker that knows our market. These are going to people outside of them. And about that same time, I had a client from Walnut Creek, which is two hours north of, of San Jose. And he, he had a large brokerage firm. This is back when brokers ruled. He had a large brokerage firm. He had investors with properties in Silicon Valley. So he was doing their loans and needing these properties, these investment properties appraised. He didn't know the market. So he asked if we would include photographs of the comparable sales and because that was just not heard of. And I actually, when I went to my staff and said, you know, we're going to start taking photographs, they go, what? We're going to do what? How much more are we going to get, you know, for it? So that these are paradigm shifts that we actually experienced. And the reason for it is because you had people from out of that market receiving the appraisal reports and needing more information for them to be comfortable to make the loan. And so that was the really the beginnings of expanding the narration because it used to be, you know, we're writing the report for the local banker, knows the market. We don't, you know, it could basically be a restricted appraisal report. Sure. Would that be a problem? Whereas that day, you know, we have 15 pages of addenda describing everything about about the market and the property and the adjustments. Yeah, it's, it's a, a, a certainly a different world. Fascinating perspective that for those that have lived through it, they're like, oh my goodness, this just brings back memories. Many of them good, some of them maybe not so much. And for others, it's very hard for them to even conceive of what was in existence before they were in existence. Yes, yes. Oh, that is that is phenomenal. So, it, you know, it starts out, it's a phone call from your brother. You leave this uh, technology industry. You get into this appraisal industry, but you are proficient with technology. You're bringing in opportunities for your firm early on. How did your experience in that firm evolve in the 80s going into the 90s? So... It was a combination, Michael, because at the same time, and again, this was before the merger of the Society of Real Estate Appraisers and the American Institute. Yes. And so I came up through the society. So I was very active in the society. We also we had a very active society there. And the society was basically coming up through the... Um, not from the banks, but from the savings and loans. And so we oh, okay. had a lot of appraisers that were part of the savings and loans that were active in that market. So I kind of became involved in that, was involved in the organization leadership. And so that opened up doors for me as well, because that exposed me to other people like-minded that were also leaders in the industry, also interested in technology. When the digital, I remember when the digital cameras came out, we were all comparing them, you know, testing them, that sort of thing. Sure. And then I remember also that if about that same time, I got involved in what was called then the California Association of Real Estate Appraisers, C-A-R-E-A. Oh. I was the okay. director. I was going back to Washington, D.C., to the foundation meetings. 
And this was this goes clear back to when Jim Park was at the foundation before he left and then came back. But that oh, okay. opened the doors for the opportunity to, to be meeting other appraisers from around the country that were also very interested, very involved in the industry, very involved in what was going on. And so that just, I mean, I feel very blessed to have had the opportunity to work with these brilliant minds in the industry in that early time. And as a result, kind of all knew was in the leading edge of the technology. Matter of fact, I'll never forget, I was on a plane heading from San Jose to Washington, D.C. to attend one of the, the TAFAC meetings. And in the airline magazine, they had a photograph of a red brick. And the red brick said, <laughs> when the battery on your laptop, because this is right when laptops were first coming out, when the battery sure. on your laptop goes dead, this is what your laptop is worth, right? This is the, the useful it has, the brick. <laughs> because the, the battery lives were very short. But you could see where, you know, as time was passing and as technology was increasing, then the battery life was increasing. We were aware of that. We were constantly reaching out for that. I do the same thing today, even today. You know, as the battery life expands, I'm going to conferences, taking notes. You know, you don't want to be sitting there in the middle of the afternoon and your your laptop battery goes dead. It's a you know, phone out, you know, power outlets close by. And so now we have the capability with, and literally the generations are, are expanding so rapidly that a laptop that you bought two years ago is obsolete today, right? And so, so, and again, that's all part of staying in tune with what is going on in the industry, attending conferences. I cannot stress how important it is for appraisers, the boots on the ground appraisers, because remember when I was coming through the ranks, the appraisal firm was really the model. So you had appraisal, I had 54 appraisers in five offices. And so wow. that was the model. But today the model is appraisers are working pretty much independently by themselves. And so they're missing out on a lot of the updated information that is out there. And so by participating in appraisal organizations, being active in the leadership, that exposes these appraisers to this new technology and attending the conferences. You have all these vendors that are attending the conferences that are at the leading edge of what the technology is that appraisers are going to be using today and tomorrow. And having that direct exposure, being able to see those demonstrations and kick the tires, if you will, on these programs yes. and determine what's going to work for them, how can they better utilize this technology to their benefit. It's just critical, I believe, in, in for the survival of those appraisers that want to continue in this business. Technology is more the driving force today than it's ever been. As it, as it is in other industries as well. And I mean, it's such a fascinating turn of events from having gotten into the industry, started your own firm. Did you stay with your own firm or did that change at any point uh, in the 80s and 90s? Changed uh, not in the 90s, the 80s and 90s. I was continuing to build the firm and expand the markets. And then in 2000, well, actually, right in the late 80s, I was also teaching one of the local colleges and sure ran into a man who was also a teacher there. And we became very good friends and we formed an appraisal seminar company called Appraisal Seminar. So in oh, okay. the 90s, we were literally writing and developing and teaching appraisal courses around California. And particularly when Fannie Mae would come out with a, a revision to the, to the Fannie Mae form, I remember being in San Diego. We had 400 appraisers in the auditorium, and I think it was the Red Lion Inn. 
And we had so many people that we had to put, we had to put the the screen up on a table so that the people in the back could actually see, see it. There was wow. so much demand at that time. And so we did that. Yes. And uh, we're very successful at it. And that was uh, that would have been in the mid nineties. And then in ninety eight, ninety nine, his mother, my seminar partner's mother, lived in Texas. So he decided to move back to Texas. So he moved back to Texas. And then a year later, my brother, who had come back into the appraisal business, was managing my Concord office. And he talked my brother and his wife into also moving to Texas. So they moved to Texas in 2000. I came out in 2001 to visit. And was went through the office, what was to be what I thought was going to be a five-minute conversation with the chief appraiser ended up being an hour-and-a-half conversation. At the end of it, they said, well, we want you to come to Texas. And because, you know, when, again, you know, we're solving the problem. Sure. Right? And how can we make <laughs> it a better place? How can we improve? Yes. And so compliance, you know, I had a a background in compliance. And so by that time, I was teaching USPAP. I've been teaching USPAP since 95. And so I had that background. And this was before the certification. We were still just teaching the course. I was teaching USPAP. And so anyway, made me an offer. And at that time, I was ready to make a change in my life. I was, you know, getting burned out at managing, you know, the multi-office organization and trying to up with the markets. And so I accepted the offer, made the move to Texas. Matter of fact, I moved to Texas on September 4th. My brother and his wife moved in September 4th of 2000, and I literally moved September 4th of 2001. And so there exactly one week before 9-11. And so that's mine. But I immediately became involved in the Appraisal Institute activities at the local chapter here in North Texas, and then also at the state level with the state coalition. And again, I would recommend that appraisers get involved in the state organizations, national organizations, and state coalitions, because we have Many state coalitions are being formed. They're expanding. We have the National Association of Appraisers has what's called the Board of Governors, which is the, you know, the various appraisal or uh, coalitions around the country. And so it's giving us a voice as a unified body that we really didn't have before. And we still, when you think about it, the Appraisal Institute has a lobby in Washington, D.C., Bill Garbrun's got DiBiaseo. And so, you know, they're on Capitol Hill very often, being the voice of appraisers, if you will. But there are very few other appraisal organizations that are act- as actively involved. But that's a fraction, if you look at it, that's a fraction of what the other organizations, National Association of Realtors, they have millions and millions and millions of dollars that are being invested in the lobbying efforts that we're trying to participate in. And so any expansion of the voice that we have for the appraiser out there, we try to to capitalize on. And so I highly encourage that appraisers get involved in that. I definitely appreciate that. So what? here you are nearly 20 years later, right at the uh, turn you know, pivotal turn. It's 2000, 2001. Uh, what happened to your firm? Did you turn it over to your employees via an ESOP or did you sell that or what happened? Well, so as time was passing in the mid 80s and the early 90s, it was brick and mortar. And so yes. we all had offices. We all went into the office. But as technology was advancing and we came up with the floppy disk, Remember the floppy disk? Oh, yes. So we had the floppy disk that we would come in and we would take the, everybody by then had their own home computers, which were big desktops at the time. They were not laptops. They were big desktops. 
but we had floppy disks that they would download the appraisal report, bring it into the office, and then manually insert it into the server, upload that into the network. And I'll never forget one morning, one of our appraisers came in. She inserted the floppy disk into the file server and then inadvertently hit the delete command. No. And deleted the hard drive of the server rather than the uh, floppy disk. Disk. And so, fortunately, the uh, my brother-in-law at the time was was the administrator for our network, and he happened to have been in the office and was able to get us back up and running. But everything was still very manual at that time. We you know, still didn't really have the capabilities that we have today. So as time was passing, the appraisers were working more and more independently. I was getting them approved individually with the various lenders. So even though the appraisal reports were going out under GE Stevens and Associates letterhead, the individual appraisers had reached a point where they were able to complete the appraisal, sign it. I did not have to review and sign and so through that independence, we had, they had literally gotten to the point where they pretty much had established their own client base. And so I was able to just divest my interest in the corporation. We should, it took us about a year after all, it took us about a year, but, you know, we shut everything down, moved everything to, you know, the clients, to the other appraisers, and many of them, uh, you know, we're still active even today. So that's fantastic. That what an interesting iteration of of technology and migration of relationships and business. You know, it's still going on today yes. from that same standpoint. Okay. Fascinating. So, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, when I was the chief appraiser at Metro West, I would go around the country when. We had a, a new version of USPAP, and I would go around the country, and I would teach our staff appraisers, and through appraisal seminars, I would get state credit. So they would get the seven-hour update credit, and and literally, when I went to Silicon Valley, I literally had a dozen of my former appraisers that would come attend the USPAP class, and then we would get together and, and have a, a good catch-up after. That's kind of amazing experience. That's so. What is it? The uh, chief uh, appraiser position that you took at Metro West that brought you to Texas? No. Well, no. I was actually that was with Landsafe Appraisal. That was what was under Countrywide. That was prior to the acquisition of Bank of America. So when Bank of America took over Countrywide, we were. I was the chief compliance officer for for Landsafe. We had transitioned into credit risk. So as soon as Bank of America acquired Landsafe, then I went over to Bank of America in credit risk, which is where I was at when I left in 2011 and became the chief appraiser for Metro West. I think that's fascinating. And, you know, this is, gives a sense for people to understand Wow. How how does someone, you know, who has as much experience as a gentleman like Greg Stevens get to a role that he's in? And as you've touched on, part of it is just working hard, but also hear the importance of getting involved, contributing. You know, the benefit of volunteering is one, you do get to be of assistance, but you also get to learn and grow along the way, establishing relationships, you know, expanding your peer connections, opening up doors. And along the way, that one day you look around and like someone says, hey, uh, would you consider this? And as you said, sometimes you say yes. You know, 20 years later, uh, looking for a change. And, and that brought you from the West Coast to, I guess, you know, now in the, here in the 2022, 2023 era, where so many people talk about leaving California, you were one of the early ones leaving back uh, two decades ago. Yes. Matter of fact, when I first, when I first moved to, uh, to Dallas, I lived in Plano. Okay. I was much smaller back then. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven because there was more on the freeways. 
when we would make appointments back in Silicon Valley, you would make it at 10 in the morning and you know between 10 and 2 p.m. because you wanted to be off of the freeway, get on the freeway after the morning commute, and get off the freeway before the evening commute. And so when I moved to, to Texas, the freeways, you could literally drive 16 to 70 miles an hour. This is wonderful, you know, which now today with everybody from California moving to North Texas, you know, now we're back to gridlock. That is definitely the case. One of the interesting experiences you have that a lot of people don't have a lot of perspective on is the is the whole role of compliance and risk management. Right. Um, a lot of people that are in the field or they're working on valuation of assets don't get a behind-the-scenes look into what that is. So for you in that role, going to what was uh, LandSafe, and then you know before you even got into the chief real estate appraiser role in the following decade, what are the type of activities and responsibilities does someone in that role have that you were both new but learning and really responsible for nationally? Well, it was, it was really centered around compliance with federal and state laws. And so as the chief compliance officer, I was the liaison between the valuation unit and the, the lending, if you will, the lending side of the bank. And so I had a staff that was monitoring the, uh, the regulations, both at state level and federal level. And then as we would see a change taking place, we would advise senior management of what the potential impact that might be for the institution itself. And then in the late 90s, the, or in, in, I'm sorry, in, in the late 2000s, starting about 2006, 7, 8, 9, right about the time of the mortgage market meltdown, and as a, as a reaction to that, we had the Home Valuation Code of Conduct, Oh, HVCC, yeah. <laughs> and so from that, then we had Dodd-Frank, and the knee-jerk reaction to Dodd-Frank was that you need to have a buffer, an insulator between production and the valuation. Landsafe proved very beneficial to Bank of America for that role, and so as AMCs were beginning to be introduced into the market, then there became the concern about regulating AMCs. And so as the chief compliance officer for the bank, I was actually the first controlling person, if you will, between LandSafe appraisal and the states that were beginning to introduce the AMC legislation using the Appraisal Institute model that they had developed that a lot of the state legislatures were using. And so that required then a, a monitoring of the AMC legislation language, both the legislation and the regulation within those states to make sure that we were in compliance. And so each year, more and more states were passing the AMC legislation, so that increased the role. And so when I went over to, to Metro West as an appraisal firm, we got away from the AMC registration requirement because it was an appraisal firm, not an appraisal management company. But what it required was that we manage the policies and procedures, because I wrote the policies and procedures, and making sure that we were compliant with all of the requirements, especially operating as an appraisal firm, as a business, and interacting between lenders and the individual appraisers. Because in many instances, you have your clerical staff at the appraisal firm that's actually interacting with the clients, and you want to make sure that they are doing so, that they're knowledgeable and aware. So I actually developed USPAP for non-appraisers, which is you know a webinar that, that I used and, and actually later distributed 
when I got into chief compliance officer for Valuation Link, expanded that and actually did training for the internal staff of some of our lender clients for that same reason, because their staff were dealing directly with appraisers, wanting to make sure that there wasn't a violation of appraiser independence, understanding what those parameters were and so forth. So all of that just expanded the need for staying current with all of the compliance requirements. See, it's absolutely fascinating for many who really never get an opportunity to possibly speak with someone other than an appraisal manager or, in this case, maybe a, a, a regional chief appraiser. That they don't get the opportunity to be in conversation with someone who is the, a chief appraiser of a firm, much less a national firm, and hear that difference and importance. I mean, it's kind of lobbied around like, oh, you know, protect the public and, oh, there's there's regulation and there's there's guidelines. But it's a very different thing to know that there are a lot of people, as you touched on, even having a staff, whose whole responsibility is to keep track of state and federal regulations to ensure compliance. Like, compliance is a huge component. Especially post, well, you had FIREA, but then Dodd-Frank, really the one that laid the hammer down on on the lending institutions. And as a a subsidiary or an agent of the institution, that meant that we, we have to be aware of those requirements. And now you know, with the all of the news and the media regarding appraisal bias, now we have all of these new requirements that are coming down, particularly on the education side. We have states, California, for instance, now has a requirement for fair housing courses that appraisers will be required to take. And that's part yes. of the, the A2B criterion in their first exposure draft that they just put out and was uh, finished comment on. Uh, and that will be, that'll actually be part of the criterion going forward is that we appraisers will have to complete a certain number of hours in fair housing, understanding fair housing and fair lending regulations. No, oh, I totally get that. So given all the steps you've taken through the course of your career from being in technology to being in appraisal, starting out as a as a field appraiser, as we would say, then to overseeing other appraisers and then growing a firm across multiple offices and a larger team to getting involved with a national firm and in compliance and then overseeing an appraisal firm that had, if I'm not mistaken, Metro West was in, what, 26 states? 33 markets. About, yeah, I think 36 states, but 33. Yeah, 30, yeah, mid-20s. Politan markets, yeah. Yeah, someone would say all the NFL markets is another way to think about <laughs> <Yes>. it. <laughs> yes. Especially appreciation down there in Texas of all things, you know. You know love the Cowboys kind of stuff. But um, with that approach and kind of how things have evolved for you now, how do you spend more of your time these days? Well, when Class Valuation acquired Metro West and Valuation Link back in January of 2022, then I ended up leaving and formed my own compliance firm. And so now I specialize in nothing but compliance. And so we have GE Stevens Compliance and Consulting. And so that is my primary focus now, and that is, and I'm actually, Michael, I'm actually able to utilize all of that experience wow. that I have because I have, yes. I have lender clients, I have a sure. clients, I have appraisal firm clients, I have government agencies that I'm doing compliance consulting for, and so having a background internal lending operations. Yes. In, in appraisal operations, being an AQB certified USPAP instructor, having that USPAP background, all of that has enabled me, if you will, to go ahead and form this, this compliance company and provide that compliance consulting. It's one of those assemblages that wouldn't be possible if you hadn't taken the steps you did 
along different, really, decades of your life and involvement in the same profession. You know, one of the things people talk about, oh, they do a lot of job hopping. There's something to be said for those that stick in a lane and stay there over a period of time because big trees grow from small saplings and they just have to stay there the whole time. They don't keep moving around and getting transplanted. With, with that as a role and given that what you're doing now at this point, what are the maybe top two or three ongoing conversations that you're having with this range of of clients, be it lenders or AMCs or, you know, even uh, governmental entities? Mostly having to do with making sure that they have the, the appropriate policies and procedures and staffing to enable them to be compliant because we have so much oversight. You know, everybody has oversight. The banks have oversight. The AMCs have oversight. The appraisal firms have oversight from their clients. And so having written policies and procedures for so many years and having that, that background, I'm in a position where I can actually go in, audit an operation, identify places where they're missing because there are a lot of AMCs out there, a lot of appraisal firms that don't really have the capacity to have someone with my background that has the understanding of those requirements. So it's sure. very easy for me to go in and identify very quickly where they can shore up. So if they do get an audit, whether it's an audit from a government agency, whether it's an audit from a lender, then they will have their policies and procedures in place, as well as the training for the staff, because we also do training. So oh, I training of the staff to ensure that if the policy says this and the procedure says this, that the, the staff are actually doing what the policy and the procedures say they are. And so that, that's obviously one of the big audit functions when an auditor comes into an operation is to see, to confirm that what is actually being done is what is written, and that's assuming that it's written, because in many instances, I find that there's nothing in writing whatsoever, and so there's a lot of vulnerability there. Fascinating. So given that those are the type of, I'll call it broad scope, broad in scope, as well as uh, depth in experience, type of engagements that you have with clients. What are you most excited about at this point? You know, as we like to hear in the you know, latter portion of our, our time together today, what are the things that you're most excited about currently and over the next, you know, say five to 10 years? I think the ability, just Michael, just looking back at what's happened in the last five, yes. I think it's almost impossible for us to say where we're going to be five years from. And so we almost have to take it at, at five years being the long term rather than you know, previously being the short term. But within the next five years, what we're going to see is a continued exponential growth of technology. And through that technology, it creates new opportunities for appraisers. It creates new opportunities for those that are supporting the appraisal process. And so it's going to require additional training. And so I cannot overemphasize, you know, I mean, I've been going to colleges and to classrooms for, the, for over 50 years, right? And so I cannot overemphasize the importance, the significance of continuing in learning and staying abreast of what these new changes are. And so those really will open the doors for opportunity. Anyone that's interested in coming into the industry, most of these young people coming in are already technologically savvy. My grandchildren already know more about my iPhone. I didn't. Right? And so, you know, they, you know, they have they have the capability of immediately embracing this technology and utilize the new education program that we have through Perea, Practical Applications of Real Estate Appraisal. That's all technology-based. So trainees that are coming in wanting to 
complete that experience credit environment, yes. they're in a position where they are already friendly with all the technology, and the yes. platforms, and the Zoom, and and on and on. That you know, old timers like me, you know, we're still we're still adjusting to right. Those opportunities will just continue to expand, opening the door for people in remote areas where the, there was not a supervisor, where they did not have an opportunity to enter the profession. Yes. Alden Perea program. And, and last year, Melissa Bond, a, an appraiser in Mississippi, threw a grant through the appraisal subcommittee and the Mississippi Appraisal Board, introduced the uh, practical application program, the NPAT program, and now has 20 trainees in the remote area. She specifically went out and got individuals in underserved markets. And so with that technology capability, we have the the opportunity to expand into these markets where we do have a, a shortage of appraisers. We have a, a shortage in diversity, representation, and the technology is going to enable us to really capitalize. So I'm very excited about that. And I think that's going to be probably where the next paradigm occurs. Yeah. I hear the common theme, and although I don't know if you've actually described it that way, from your beginnings in the uh, semiconductor industry all the way through to even where you're at now, it's that continued understanding of and willingness to engage with technology for a meaningful step forward from what was done previously, many times not always knowing what it's going to bring, but a strong confidence that you know tomorrow's use of that technology provides at least improvements, if not complete transformations of how things have been done in the past. I could not agree with you more, Michael, because I've interacted with appraisers that have resisted change, and I've interacted with appraisers who have embraced it, welcomed it, and jumped in with both feet. And those who embraced it, those are the ones that are flourishing today, and those will be the ones that flourish in the future. Not being afraid of the change, not being afraid of trying something new. I think that is really the key. And the involvement, staying involved is critical because had I not been involved in these appraisal organizations and the leadership, you know, meeting these people from all over the country, I would not have the diverse background that I have. And that was actually going to be kind of my next question as we move to wrap up, which is what does getting involved mean to you? Because to someone else, you know, it might just mean going to a meeting, but I'm clear, uh, one, having gotten to know you over the years and, and two, hearing even more about how early on you've been involved with different associations and organizations. What does that look like in terms of actual activity? And then what were some of the things you learned that you never would have gained access to if you had not gotten involved? Volunteering is the operative word for the day. Yes, it is. Volunteer at any level, you know, whether it be a state coalition, whether it be a local appraisal organization, volunteer, get involved. Because once you get involved, and it might be just a minuscule task in the beginning, but once you get involved and get familiar with the people, get familiar with the organization, then you can start up through the leadership. And once you're in leadership positions, then you're interacting with a broader spectrum of individuals. And what that does is it increases then your own learning base. Because what I learned years ago is when you're going to teach someone something new, you have to learn it yourself well enough to be able to teach it. So what does that do? That just made you, me, a better person as a result of it. And so it's that payback. I cannot overemphasize the payback far exceeds the benefits that I have received in my life. I so appreciate your perspective, having had this similar experience, not only in this industry, but in other industries. And it's uh, what I found is the way to get breadth 
inside of more of a vertical experience. So the vertical experience being, hey, uh, being in this case, currently real estate appraisal professional, and I do appraisal versus, well, what's it like to meet with other people that are in different segments of valuation or meet, you know, different geographic locations or different asset types, or in this case, different fields altogether. And then seeing how it's so much more interconnected than it is independent. And people are like, oh, I'm independent. I'm like, you're really not. I mean, you're always a cog in some wheel turning at some speed. Do you have any understanding and familiarity of how you might fit in? Yes, that is so true. So I could not have said it better. <laughs> hey, well, hey, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm just paraphrasing a little bit about what I've heard you say so far. Well, I mean, Greg, we always like to, in the, in the kind of closing moments, what would be uh, your final words for those that maybe are not yet in the industry that might be considering it or people that maybe have been in for a while but are not aware of opportunities that exist for them over the next couple of years or next couple decades? Well, most appraisers that I'm familiar with are involved in mortgage lending, and that is their primary background, if you will. But there are multiple other opportunities out there. And, you know, like for instance, I'm on an appraisal review board with the county, getting involved in that, getting involved in assessment appeal appraisals. I teach a course through McKissick on assessment appeal appraisals, expanding your business, getting more familiar with the bifurcated and hybrid appraisal process. And again, there are a lot of aging appraisers out there that are getting tired of running a tape, right? But if they can sit in their office and utilize the services of these property inspection companies to complete appraisals, they can continue working and continue contributing for a significant period of time and stay involved that way as well. And so in, in closing, I would say that that's probably where I see some of the, the, the biggest opportunities, if you will. And again, the technology that is taking place right now is exponentially improving. And so being open to the new opportunities that may not be here today, but will be tomorrow, and rather than poo-pooing them, explore them, check them out, see if that might work for you. And again, going into other areas of, of your career, residential appraisers that really enjoy math might investigate working for a commercial appraisal firm where they're dealing in higher levels of calculation and so forth. They may well excel at that. So that's another opportunity. There's a lot of commercial work out there. So I would say that someone thinking about coming into the industry there are a lot of opportunities other than just in mortgage lending. And so, you know, they may be talking to some mortgage lending appraisers that are down on the industry right now, you know, they're kind of pessimistic about it, but there are still so many other opportunities, personal property appraisers, machinery and equipment. I mean, there are so many at <laughs> that someone interested in pursuing have an opportunity if they just sure. and and get out there and reach out. Ask yes, that's I couldn't agree with you more. So I think that was one of my first uh, exposures, probably a couple decades ago. Not that I knew any better. And and the interesting thing was I'd been in private equity, but I never thought of business valuation as a valuation in the same way the discipline of real estate valuation exists. But there's still valuation, and it's assets. There's all just different types of assets and there's different specialties in that frame. Like you said, whether it's machinery and equipment, whether it's personal property, whether it's art, whether it's intellectual domain, like whatever it might be, so many possibilities for the skill set evaluation. And we happen to be highly focused here on our conversation about real estate. So no, Greg, love the perspective. Appreciate this hour that we've been able to spend together and provides such a span of time and technology which not always is the way the conversations go. So very much appreciate you contributing that. And as always, I've enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I was going to say, as always, it's a, another learning opportunity and we're, we're grateful to have Greg as a guest. And we look forward to everyone 
being able to join us on our next segment of the Parusings podcast as we continue to understand the power of values over time. With that, we say thank you, Greg, and until our next one. Thank you so much, Mark. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Paru Zings, Appraisers on Purpose. We hope you enjoyed learning from the amazing life paths and achievements of our guests. Don't forget to like us on LinkedIn and other podcast channels to hear more from appraisers and valuers regarding their life and their work. If you have any suggestions or questions for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us a message on LinkedIn and we'll be sure to get back to you. Thanks again for listening and until we're together again for the next session of Paru Zings, Appraisers on Purpose. Create the change that you seek.